Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blood of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Volume 2, Episode 1 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Thursday, September 21st, 2017. I guess we could call this the preseason edition of the Bobcast, or maybe more aptly named what Bob did on a summer vacation. Now, if you are a returning Bobcast listener or subscriber, thank you very much for the loyalty. Great to have you back for another season. If, however, you are a new listener or subscriber, um, here's the deal. Maybe a little bit of a mission statement, if you will, for what the Bobcast is, what it's all about. I do this thing mostly for fun. No one at TSN said to me, hey, you got to do a podcast. So it really ends up being whatever I kind of want it to be, and that changes from week to week. And it's not to say that um, I don't like listener feedback, um, but here's what I think this is all about. At its most basic level, I think the Bobcast is just a vehicle for me to interact with the fans and kind of do what I've done for most of my career, or tried to anyways, and that's provide some information and a little bit of entertainment to whether it's viewers, listeners, readers, fans, you name it. So when I decided to do a podcast, that's why I chose the Q&A format. You ask questions, I try to answer them, give you a little information, try to make you a little smarter, try to make me a little smarter because in order to answer the questions, I usually have to go do some research, which I don't usually enjoy doing, but I feel obliged to do if you ask the question. So I, I learn a lot by getting the answers to your questions, and I hope you learn something by getting those answers. Now, I talk hockey all day, every day, and and so the idea of coming on and doing nothing but hockey on a podcast, that didn't turn my crank too much. I like to talk about other things, kind of branch out a little bit. So doing the Bobcast kind of gives me the freedom to talk about pretty much anything I like, and oftentimes it's not necessarily about hockey. It could be about anything, and anybody who's listened to the Bobcast last year knows we could talk about wine, we could talk about booze, we could talk about music, television, Netflix, uh, travel tips, movies, books. Um, you know, I might ask you guys for an opinion on something, and uh, I might just simply give you a few opinions on something. It could be really deep thoughts, really meaningful, uh, really uh, a cathartic exercise for me, almost like therapy, or it could be me just bullshitting and uh, making a total ass of myself, which uh, if anybody remembers back to the episodes last year where we talked about the sod car or uh, me getting absolutely uh, obliterated drunk at a National Hockey League All-Star game at uh, Nassau County Coliseum, well, those are the kind of stories that uh, sometimes pop up. So in any case, um, you know, I would love it that uh, if you subscribe and... uh, and, and like what I'm offering here. But you know what? I understand that for some people, they don't want to hear all my self-absorbed BS. And uh, and that's fine. So don't listen. And uh, just don't complain either. I mean, I, I really don't care if you don't like it. So you don't have to... You don't have to spend too much time or effort on your part telling me that. Just don't listen. 
Um, but uh, I don't want that to sound too harsh either. I, I hope everybody does subscribe. And it's just this is my preemptive strike to let any new listeners know what's going on here. So uh, I'm genuinely happy that you guys are listening today. And uh, so away we go on another season on the Bobcast. So how was your summer anyways? A good, I hope. Uh, mine was, um, I don't know, I guess it was interesting. Um, from the weather forecast or, or weather reflections, way too much rain in July. But hey, we got no control over that. And it, it rained too much in the literal sense. It also was a little rainy, foggy in the figurative sense for me too. I don't know if you remember or not, but in a Bobcast episode last spring, it would have been in April or May, um, I mentioned my real good pal, Stu Seedhouse, and uh, actually dedicated one of the Bobcast episodes last spring to my pal, Stu. And um, I mentioned that my really good friend, Stu, was in the battle of his life, and um, and he was. And uh, I should just point out that Stu um, and I, we kind of grew up our adult lives together, 25 plus years. Uh, He's got a son named Stephen, who was born in 1986. Of course, I've got a son named Mike, who was born in 1986. And from the time they were five or six years old, um, right up to the time they were 16 or 17 years old, so for the better part of a decade, uh, Stephen and Michael not only played hockey and lacrosse on the same team every year, but they were pretty much on the same line. They were on and on, on, on the ice or on the lacrosse floor, they were pretty much inseparable line mates, um, pals. And uh, and so as a result, Stu and I did a lot of coaching together. We coached hockey together. We coached lacrosse together. Spent an enormous amount of time. Stu's a really bright guy, smartest guy I, I've ever met. Um, mechanical engineer who worked at uh, Ontario Power Generating. And um, on April 10th, uh, Stu was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And... Uh, Three months to the day that he was diagnosed with it, uh, he died. So that would have been on, on July 10th. So Stu was just 59 years old. Uh, I think his 60th birthday is in, was supposed to be in November. So my vacation started off with watching a really good friend pretty much waste away um, and, and die in front of us. And, um, you know, this pancreatic cancer, it is a bastard. It really is. I mean, if you heard the news over the summer... Uh, Dave Semenko, uh, former Edmonton Oiler, tough guy, tremendous guy, Sammy, as he was known to everybody. Um, his diagnosis, from the time he was diagnosed to the time that he died, was three weeks. Uh, Stu got three months, and none of the three months were very good. Much of it was spent in hospital, and it was not uh, not a great time for him or his family. Uh, really tragic. But um, So the, the first few weeks of what would normally be you know, a really happy time going on vacation largely revolved around Stu and what he was going through. And it really kind of throws you for a loop. Um, you, you get a little bit off balance by the whole thing. And um, number one, first and foremost, you just feel so bad for his entire family, his lovely wife, Anne, his kids, Jeff, Steve, and Ellie. Um, I mean, our families basically grew up together, um, as I said, spending summers together on the lacrosse front and spending winters together on the hockey front. And you know, you could see how easily it could be your family. And, and I think that's, you know, that's the hard part is that uh, is to see the suffering that his family went through and to know it could easily, easily be, uh, be your family. And, uh, you know, I'm 61 years old and I'm a guy that's been well aware of my own mortality for some time. I, I try to, you know, uh, 
be a Stoic, if, you, if you're into Stoicism at all. And uh, one of the things of Stoicism is being acutely aware that uh, of your own mortality and trying to live your life in such a way that so when that moment comes, and I, and I think Stu did a great job. He, he really did live life to its fullest. And uh, it was just another reminder to me that you just don't know how long you've got. And, and I've had a lot of these uh, reminders, and, and they're not pleasant. Um, over the last number of years, I had a, another good friend of ours, Tony Birdie, who passed away in his 50s a few years ago. Um, his son, Adam, was drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks, and Adam played hockey against Mike growing up in lacrosse with Mike. Um, another guy, Rich Rank in Elmira, Ontario. Everybody knows Richie. His son, Garrett, is now a National Hockey League referee. His other son, Kyle, um, was the captain of the St. Lawrence University uh, hockey team the first year that, uh, that that Mike played at St. Lawrence and the Rank family are terrific and and uh, Richie went in his 50s too so I've had all these reminders uh, and and not nice reminders of of how you can be the greatest guy and have the greatest family and have everything going for you and without any rhyme or reason it's uh, it's taken away from you and I've got another good friend Sam uh, Forgione who Years ago, as we were, as he was heading to his 60th birthday, was told by somebody else that the, the the life lesson you want to take away is that that decade between 60 and 70 is your last great decade. And I, I've talked about this before on the Bobcast. Listen, there's lots of people lived 80, 90 years old, and they live full lives, and and uh, they stay healthy, and they're able to travel and, and do all those great things. But there is a theory out there, and my friend Sam laid it on me, that plan on 60 to 70 being your, your last best decade, that uh, you're still young enough to enjoy many of the things in life um, before maybe you get into your 70s and, and you start getting some medical issues or what have you. And that's not a hard and fast rule, but it, 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 I've kind of subscribed to it. Well, I mean, Tony, Rich, Stu, they didn't even get to 60. So it just reinforces that uh, um, how fleeting all of this can be. And the, the best way to honor those guys, especially Stu, is to live life to the fullest. Don't take a, a day for granted. And that's kind of what I tried to do over the, the course of the summer. There's a, a, a great line in um, in one of the books that I really like, The Obstacle is the Way, written by Ryan Holiday. And it, it talks a lot about uh, stoicism and the, the whole accepting your own mortality. And uh, it goes like this. The diagnosis is terminal for all of us. Be ready for when that day comes. That need not be depressing as much as it is invigorating. Embrace it. Daily reminders of our own mortality allow us to treat our time as a gift. Why feel fear? Death is coming, so live life right. And I think those are, uh, those are words to live by, but it's, it's easier said than done. I say easier said than done because when I look back on that, that whole month of July, the whole first month of holidays, the whole thing seems a little foggy now. And um, I usually, when I go on vacation, I have all sorts of, I'm all invigorated and I'm all excited and I, I read lots of good books and I listen to lots of great music and I watch movies or TV series and I've got all these great recommendations or I try this new bottle of wine and I, I come out of a full of piss and vinegar and I, I say, you know, watch this show, read this book, do that. And and quite frankly, I don't remember listening to, to much new music and I, I don't remember trying many new bottles of wine and um, it was a lousy summer for, quite aside from everything else, it was a lousy summer for summer movies. Um, and 
I didn't get into any TV series until into August, uh, by the way, recommendation. Um, if you haven't already done so, The Americans, very good. Uh, Matthew Reese, Kerry Russell, great show. Uh, most people are, are well finished with it, but uh, Cindy and I just got started on that in August. We're not quite finished it yet, but uh, tremendous binge watching in August. Um, I did read one really good book. Darren Dreger gave it to me. Uh, it's by Robert O'Neill, The Operator, Firing the Shots That Killed Osama Bin Laden and My Life as a Navy SEAL. Um, I'm a sucker, as I've told you guys before on the Bobcast, for anything Navy SEAL related. And uh, O'Neill's book was was really, really good. And uh, I really enjoyed that. So that was probably the one exception that I can remember reading in July and coming out of with a a lot of excitement about and and a recommendation. I didn't listen to a lot of podcasts in July. I always, during the season last year, I listened to, to Bill Burr religiously. I listened to Lance Armstrong's The Forward podcast. For whatever reason, in in July, I just didn't seem to do any of that stuff. But um, I did, uh, if you remember the Bobcast from the spring, I talked about getting a new canoe. And I went out and I did that. Very exciting. Um, Ended up with a a, a beauty. It's a a red and white sort of Canada 150 anniversary edition of a canoe that Swift Canoe in in Gravenhurst um, put out. I really like the look of it. It's got Canadian flags all over it. A special thing on the bottom. Um, they number the canoes of one to 150 and, uh, I got number 56 for the year that I was born, 1956. I'm a terrible canoeist, but I started to get much better as the, uh, as the season wore on. I should point out that I, I flipped it not once, not twice, but uh, three times. Um, our dock is a little bit higher above the water than most people would have it. And so I decided that trying to get in the canoe off the dock would have been too difficult. So I thought, how much trouble could I get in climbing into a canoe in a foot or two of water? We've got a sandy beach area um, right in front of our place. So um, I would I would say the first time I tried to get in, I, I kind of got a little wet trying to get in. Uh, that is, my ass ended up in the water. I didn't flip the canoe entirely, but I kind of fell backwards into a foot of water, and, and that was kind of humorous. Um, my wife got a kick out of that. The next time, it was my wife Cindy and I going for a canoe ride, and uh, she got in first successfully, and then I got in and I managed to dump her, and she got a little wet, which uh, she didn't find too amusing. And the third time that I dumped the canoe uh, probably was the worst one um, because uh, my daughter-in-law, Andy, uh, who's quite pregnant at the time, um, I well, I flipped the canoe right over, and she went into the drink, as did I. So that was the other great news. Uh, I'm, my, my wife and I are going to be uh, grandparents in December, little girl on the way. So we're very excited for Mike and Andy and for ourselves on that front. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that, that's uh, very exciting. Now, uh, as for the canoe, as this, July was so windy and rainy, I didn't get to use it as much as I would like. But by the time we got to August, um, I was J-stroking like it was my job. And... Uh, Jay stroking sounds vaguely rude, but um, anybody who knows anything about canoeing. Uh, so in August, the, the, the holiday kind of started to feel more like a holiday um, because myself and Cindy and two other couples, uh, the Phelans and the Cunninghams, we had uh, a California trip planned. So from August 3rd to 10th, we headed off to California. Um, if you haven't done so, I highly recommend going to visit the city of San Francisco. I'd been in the airport at San Francisco a number of times, but I'd never actually spent any time in the city. 
and we were only there for two days, but it was it's such a cool city, especially a cool city to walk around. There are so many different and and uh, interesting neighborhoods, and obviously there's a lot of touristy stuff, and we did that, cable car ride, walk by the Fisherman's Wharf, all that stuff, but the, the hill area and the hill districts they've got are, are spectacular, and there's just so much going on there. So shout out to uh, Ray Ratto, um, our favorite curmudgeonly reporter, columnist, um, in uh, in San Francisco, who gave me some great uh, tourist tips, what to avoid, what uh, to see and uh, also the uh, the Twitter handle at behind the net who goes by the uh, the pen name of Howard Chuck and uh, if anybody knows anything about advanced statistics in hockey um, they will recognize those but uh, some great uh, recommendations from both of them um, since they live in the uh, the Bay Area if you are in San Francisco I would highly recommend that uh, you check out the Starlight Room which is sort of an old-school bar lounge atop the uh, Sir Francis Drake Hotel. And uh, it's a great spot just to catch a drink, and they have tremendous views of the entire city up there, so we really enjoyed that. Um, we ended up for dinner at a place I'd highly recommend, too. It's called um, oh, it's a Mystic Hotel. It's a Charlie Palmer Hotel. Now, I'm, I'm going to explain who Charlie Palmer is in a second because I didn't have a clue. When my friend Jeremiah said, we're going to go to my buddy Charlie Palmer's place. So the the Mystic Hotel, which, by the way, is right across the road from the Starlight Room. Um, there's a place called the Burrett Tavern or the Burrett Room. And uh, my friend Jeremiah um, hooked us up for a dinner there because Charlie Palmer, as it turns out, I guess, is a, is a famous American chef. And he owns and has started multiple restaurants. Uh, he's got Oriel in New York City, one in Vegas. Um, he has the, the Mystic Hotel in San Francisco, the Harvest Hotel in, in the Napa Valley, um, multiple hotels and, uh, and restaurants and bars all over the United States. And I guess uh, he's, he's a chef on Good Morning America at times, celebrity sh- guest chef, and, and you know, very well-known chef in, in the United States. And as I say, I'm not big on, on knowing a lot of culinary things, but um, nevertheless, my friend Jeremiah grew up with uh, Charlie Palmer in, in uh, upstate New York, uh, not too far from Syracuse, and um, had some amazing stories on, on how a guy like Charlie Palmer went from being in one of these really small villages, almost towns, um, and ends up being uh, uh, a world-renowned chef with uh, with all these restaurants. So just such a cool place, and uh, it was great. The uh, Our waiter and our, our uh, sommelier that night were big hockey fans. There were some a family from St. Louis that came over and introduced themselves, recognized me, and we talked hockey for a little bit. But that's that's a really cool place to uh, to go. So I highly recommend that for uh, anybody who's in San Francisco. We we left San Francisco and it was a foggy, hey, surprise surprise, fog in San Francisco. But uh, we went across the Golden Gate Bridge. Wouldn't have known we were going across the Golden Gate Bridge because it was so foggy. So we didn't get the beautiful view from Vista Point to look back at the city on the other side of the Golden Gate. Bridge, but uh, we did fire through Sausalito, and that's a cool place to uh, visit if if you get the opportunity. And we headed up to the Napa Valley, and uh, that's been on my bucket list for forever to uh, to go to Napa Valley and experience California wine at its best. And uh, so we did three days in Napa, and it was absolutely 
and totally spectacular. Uh, everything that it's cracked up to be, and I will definitely be going back, and you can't even begin to scratch the surface of everything there is to do and see in Napa in three days, but uh, we still managed to, to have a great time. Um, if you are going to Napa, make a point of going to a place called Auberge de Soleil. Um, it's, a, it's a really nice uh, re- boutique resort hotel, um, but with a spectacular um, view from its outdoor patio. So just go in for a drink, sit on the patio. It's not a very big patio, so uh, and it's very popular. Um, but what, what a magnificent vista to, to see the whole Napa Valley in front of you. And uh, so that's, that's on the uh, must-do list if you go to Napa. That uh, same night, the first night we arrived there, um, a friend of mine by the name of Dale, who's a vice president with Duckhorn Wines, hosted a dinner for myself and my friends, the six of us plus Dale, at the Duckhorn Estate Vineyard. And it was one of those nights that will go down in in history as as one of the greatest dinners we've ever had. Um, Just the the whole setting. It's so hot and dry in Napa. It was such a beautiful night. It's so quiet and serene. Um, The vineyard was closed. It was all set up just for a private catered dinner on the porch um, for myself and my friends. And... uh, Boy, oh boy, uh, just such a memorable night. Duckhorn has, has such great wine and, um, you know, just so special. And and after that, I mean, we did a lot of the touristy things. We went to, you know, wine tours and tastings and testings and, and what have you. And everybody tell, told me after I came back, oh, you didn't do this one. You didn't do that one. You missed out on it. But um, the reality is there's only so many you can do in a day. And we didn't want to overdo it. Um, but we did do a tour at, at Jarvis, which is a, a winery in a cave. It was spectacular. Schramsberg, another uh, sparkling wine in a cave that was uh, terrific. Um, got to know a little bit about the Napa Valley going up and down at uh, Calistoga at the top and St. Helena and and Rutherford and, and all these great places. Went to Silver Oak. And, and there's so many places that I, I want to get back to. Um, there are great restaurants there. Um, we were told that go to places like Bottega, um, Press, um, and I would highly recommend anybody if they are in Napa to, to check those places out. Um, absolutely fantastic. So we did the three nights in Napa, and then we decided we wanted to go down to uh, Monterey and uh, ch- check out things uh, on the coast, and uh, that was a spectacular drive. Um we made a point of when we were driving from Napa, not just to go right back through San Francisco or not to just hook up on the interstates, but to um, to cross over by, I believe it was Foster City, and basically cross the peninsula there um, so that you get to go through some redwood forests and, uh, and see some scenery. So we went through, uh, I believe it was Woodside. La Honda, Pescadero, and right down to the Pacific Coast Highway. And if you haven't been through these redwood forests, they're absolutely spectacular. First half of the, the leg of the journey, you're climbing up the mountain, and uh, the second half, you're going back down the other side. And then suddenly, where one minute you seem like you're on top of the mountain, the next minute you're right at the Pacific Coast Highway and the, the, Pacific, uh, co- the Pacific Ocean uh, right in front of you. Incredible scenery. And uh, the drive down Pacific Coast Highway from there to through Santa Cruz and Seaside and into Monterey 
was was absolutely uh, beautiful. Stayed in Monterey, placed right on the water, the sea lines and the seals barking away, and uh, got to do the 17-mile drive through to Pebble Beach. Uh, got the picture taken at the Lone Cypress Street, did all the touristy things <laughs> um, with the camera out. Um, spent a day in Carmel shopping and, and, and checking things out. But maybe the, the most uh, breathtaking part of it all was, was taking the Pacific Coast Highway south of Carmel down towards Big Sur. Now, you can only go so far because there's been an enormous landslide where Pacific Coast Highway number one is closed at Big Sur. But we did that drive from Carmel almost to, to the landslide. And I don't know that I've ever seen more spectacular scenery. Absolutely breathtaking to be so high and so low, um, to be so mountainous, to be right on the, the coast. And uh, uh, really haven't seen anything like it and would uh, highly recommend if anybody hasn't done that to, uh, to get there and do it. When we came back from California, we really felt like we'd had a holiday and uh, the weather in August was so much better than the weather in July. And hey, listen, there were still days when you'd think about Stu and uh, especially since he loved to get in his boat so much and you'd see the boats go by and you'd think he used to pull up to the dock all the time and uh, not pulling up anymore. You'd be thinking about his wife, Anne, and how difficult it was for her dealing with the aftermath of, of all of that. But um, uh, onward and upward, I guess. So um in August, I got to do what I always get to do every August, and that's go to the Bobby Orr Celebrity Golf Tournament. But uh, the night before the dinner, the night before the golf, actually, there's a nice dinner in Perry Sound that Bobby puts on for a lot of us that uh, that attend. And, and that's a, one of my favorite nights of the year. Uh, myself, Gord Miller, Peter Mansbridge, Peter Mansbridge's son, Will. Um, we always end up sitting at the same table and telling a lot of the same stories. But it was great to catch up with Peter Mansbridge, who... I retired as the the voice in the face of uh, the national on CBC this past year. I'm very envious of uh, of Peter, and uh, should point out that Peter's actually doing a a Live Nation tour uh, of Canada this fall. And uh, so check that out if you get the opportunity. I found it fascinating that. Uh, uh, Peter's doing all these speaking engagements in various cities across Canada. And I, I thought that was a really cool concept and a cool idea. And uh, maybe that's something that uh, if uh, if possible, uh, when I retire in a few years, that uh, it would be a fun thing to, to do to put a kind of a bow on, uh, on the career. But um, in any case, uh, getting to see Bobby Orr and all his pals, uh, Peter Mahovlich, Derek Sanderson, and so many others is always uh, one of the highlights of the summer. Um, you know, I was sitting back too, and we came back from California and I was looking at different things that we might do uh, for the rest of the vacation. And it struck me, yeah, maybe, maybe we should go back to the U S open for a day or two and, and catch some tennis in uh, late August or early September. Um, number of years ago, uh, we went to the U S open for the first time and really, really enjoyed it. We're big tennis fans in the McKenzie household. We love to play tennis. We love to watch the tennis and so um went ahead and uh, booked it now we kind of did it on the cheap it was just an in and out trip two days uh new york um for u.s open tennis but it was only actually going to be one day where we went to the tennis so rather than stay in manhattan and pay for a really expensive hotel i used my spg points and uh stayed at a, a hotel in uh, flushing which is uh, literally one subway stop away um, from the uh, USTA uh, Tennis Center. And uh, 
the, the flights between Toronto and, and New York into LaGuardia are, uh, are relatively affordable. I mean, uh, flying anywhere is expensive, but uh, it's not difficult to get a round-trip ticket um, for 300 bucks or less um, on Air Canada. So booked a couple of cheap flights for Cindy and I and uh, hotel points. And uh, anyways, we uh, stayed in Flushing, which is right at the end of the, the New York City subway line the number seven line and uh, in Flushing. And uh, you can literally hop on a, a subway car uh, less than 50 yards from the hotel door and uh, you can be in Manhattan in no time. So on that first day that we arrived, we, uh, we, we took the subway into Manhattan and we had arranged to go and see a Broadway play, Come From Away. Now, if uh, you're probably familiar with it, but if you're not, it's uh, got a real Canadian angle to it, and that is it's the, uh, the story of uh, on, on 9-11 when all the planes um, that were supposed to land in the United States were basically rerouted to Gander, Newfoundland. And, uh, and, it, and it was quite a story, and there's been books written about it, and, and this play is obviously a, a takeoff from those. And uh, listen, uh, I like Broadway plays at the best of times. The, the fact this had a Canadian angle probably warmed my heart a little more. And I, I got to be honest with you, I, f- I felt very proud to be a Canadian when you see um, in that type of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, um, in that type of vehicle, if you will, um, how the how this small Canadian town in Newfoundland um, handled the adversity that uh, came their way as a result of what happened on 9-11. So great play, really enjoyed it, and uh, uh, had a real nice dinner that night in Manhattan. Went to another Charlie Palmer restaurant. Now there was at the Liberty Room at Oriole, just around the corner on uh, just at, near Times Square, and uh, grabbed an Uber back to uh, Flushing, and, and that was our day uh, in Manhattan. Now we got up the next day, and uh, as I said, one subway stop to... Uh, uh, to, to the uh, USDA Tennis Center, and we bought a, a day pass. Now, i got to tell you, going to see professional sports is never uh, uh, not costly, but you can buy, um, at face value, 65 bucks U.S., a day pass, to go to the U.S. Open. And what that day pass does is it gets you onto the grounds, and it basically gets you into any tennis match that's being played there with the exception of those that are scheduled on the main court at Arthur Ashe. And if you go at the beginning of the tournament on day one or two or three or four or five, when when there's multiple uh, matches going on, you can literally watch tennis all day and, and part of the night um, on all these smaller courts, med- medium-sized courts, and still some pretty big ones, the grandstand, Louis Armstrong, um, for 65 bucks. And... Uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating to see tennis up close uh, at that level. Um, you watch it on television is one thing. Uh, it's another thing to see it sitting courtside, um, just a few feet away from where the, the, the men or the women are playing. The speed, the power, um, absolutely incredible. And you can, as I said, you can bounce around from court to court. Um, there's tremendous restaurants and bars, so food, drink. Uh, again, not cheap, but um, the grounds themselves are, are terrific. And as I said, if, if you did nothing but pay 65 bucks um, per person for that ticket, 
it's an unbelievable day of, of professional sports entertainment in a really cool environment and a great vibe. Uh, and the day we had was really hot and sunny. Now, the day before, it had rained like crazy, and most of the matches had gotten rained out. So they were all, everything was backed up like you wouldn't believe. And uh, that night, the the day pass was good for all day and all night because some of those matches didn't finish until well past midnight um, because of the things being backed up because of the rain. But we had a night uh, night tickets for Arthur Ashe and uh, saw Venus Williams win her match. And then we saw uh, the Canadian sensation, uh, Dennis Shapovalov, uh, go up against Joe Wilfred Songus. And uh, if you remember, he beat Joe Willie in that uh, match. And that was really kind of exciting to be at Arthur Ashe and to see this teenage Canadian kid who was, in many respects, for the first week anyways, of the first week or 10 days of the tournament, was the story of the men's side of the tournament. So um, that was absolutely a, a terrific day. Um, and uh, two other, the, the other funny thing that happened on this trip is, uh, is, is just inadvertently meeting people that you don't expect to meet. And uh, uh, on that day that we went into Manhattan to see Come From Away and have dinner, we got off the subway at the uh, Times Square exit and uh, we, before we went out into the rain, I was checking my phone just to look at the address for the theater where we were going to. And who should come walking down the stairs at the subway and bumping, literally bumping into us? And keep in mind, at Times Square, there are multiple entrances to the, to the same subway stop. We're standing there getting our bearings ready to go out into the rain when who should walk in but one Stephen Seedhouse, the uh, the son of Stu, uh, Stephen, who played all that hockey lacrosse with Mike, who now works in New York. And uh, so we just inadvertently ran into him. And I, I just took that as a sign that uh, that Stu would be pleased that we got a chance to catch up with Stephen in New York City for a few minutes, albeit in the uh, in the subway. So uh, that was quite interesting. And the next day, as we were getting ready to uh, uh, go in for the Arthur Ashe part of the night and see Sha- Shapovalov play, who do I run into but my old whippy buddy James Neal, uh, now of the uh, Vegas Golden Knights, formerly the Nashville Predators. And it was great to catch up with James and uh, and J.P. Aaron Sebia, the, the Toronto Blue, former Toronto Blue Jay catcher, who's now retired from Major League Baseball. He's, uh, he's living in California and now doing some work with J.P. Morgan. So it was great to catch up with J.P. Aaron Sibia and uh and uh james neal and i don't go to many baseball games i'd say i go to one every other year um usually in the tsm box mostly just to eat and drink uh on tsn's dime but um i was there in the park that day that jp rncba made his debut professional debut with the blue jays he had two home runs that day and uh i was up in the tsm box filling my face and uh and having a few drinks. So uh, it's funny you get to, to to meet that guy all those years later and to be there the day he hit two dingers in his major league debut. But anyways, great to, great to catch up with them. So we came back from the U.S. Open and uh, really, really, really enjoyed it. And, and I thought after we came back, you know, that's a trip that I was hesitating on booking and uh, deciding whether or not to go. And Really glad that we went, and, and given all that happened over the course of the summer with Stu, it just kind of reinforced to me that, uh, you know what, don't put things off. Uh, maybe you don't get a chance to uh, to do that again. So um, anyways, back home, Labor Day comes, summer's over, 
so so it seemed. Uh, came out of the gate hot for work. Uh, went right to Penticton for the uh, the rookie tournament that was going on there with the four Western Canadian teams: Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and the Winnipeg Jets. As I've done in prior years, although not last year because of the World Cup. Um, I was able to set up general manager interviews with uh, Jim Benning and Brad Treliving and Peter Shirelli and Kevin Cheveldayoff. So I uh, did all four of those interviews on the, the, f- the first Friday after Labor Day and, and really enjoyed doing those. That's a good way to, to get back up to speed on what the hell's going on after a summer of ignoring hockey. And um, the general managers are great too. Um, I find them to, with each passing year to be more and more candid in terms of how they view their team and and what they uh, and we seem to get some real positive feedback on that, but uh, it is busy. I mean, I flew out to Penticton on Wednesday. Um, Thursday was basically a day of preparation uh, for those interviews. Uh, probably takes about two to three hours for to prepare for each interview that I did. So you know, a good eight to eight to 12 hours uh, on Thursday for prep. And then on Friday, you've got the four interviews that take place. There were a couple of rookie tournament games. So that was a a really full day. And then early Saturday morning, got up, flew out of Penticton, back to Vancouver, Vancouver to Toronto. And as soon as I landed right to Rico Coliseum, interviewed Mark Bergevin of the Montreal Canadiens, checked out a rookie game that night between Ottawa and Montreal. Uh, And then uh, the next day on the Sunday, interviewed Lou Lamarillo and Pierre Dorian, uh, to round out the seven Canadian GMs, a uh, little bit of a rookie rookie game on the Sunday. So I um, was able to, to get those done. And uh, the feedback we got on them was, was really positive. And as I said, uh, no better way for me to understand where these teams are at than to uh, really drill down with their general managers. Now, I should point out that uh, you come out of the gate hot. You can, it's preseason. You don't want to... You don't want to use up all your energy too uh, too early, so we kind of back things off a little bit. And I was really pleasantly surprised to get a nice invitation um, from uh, Jen and Patty, who are part of the Tragically Hips management team, um, to be invited to uh, Toronto International Film Festival world premiere at Roy Thompson Hall. Um, would have been a week ago Wednesday um, of the of the documentary Long Time Running. Um, filmmakers Jennifer Beshawal and uh, Nicholas Depontier did an amazing job. 97 minutes of of uh, of greatness, uh, chronicling the uh, the tragically hips, uh, basically for lack of a better term, I guess farewell tour that occurred uh, last summer. That really was like nothing we've seen in Canada that I can think of, uh, unless you bring up 1972, the Summit Series. Um, that final Tragically Hip concert on the Saturday night in Kingston uh, in the summer of 2016 was something that sort of uh, um, transcended almost our entire country, it, it, right from coast to coast. Um, what Gord Downey was going through, um, battling uh, uh, brain cancer that ultimately um, will be terminal, Um that was just a, a phenomenal summer, and uh, this film um, brought it all back into focus. And so if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend you get out to see Long Time Running. I believe it's in pretty much national distribution now. And uh, it was uh, it was a wonderful night uh, to see that movie. And then there was a social function afterwards at a place called King Taps, 
which is a, a, a great uh, barn facility restaurant uh, right on King Street in the Financial District in Toronto. And it was so great to see so many of the band members of the Tragically Hip um, and many other good friends who were associated with them. Now, my pal Gord Downey was, uh, was not able to, to be there that night, um, which was unfortunate. But um, our thoughts are definitely with him um, during uh, his battle. And uh, yet another reminder about how fragile and uh, precarious uh, life and health and all those things are. So um, thoughts definitely with Gord. Um, and as I said, the, uh, the music and the, uh, the film were just... Uh, so joyous, and uh, it was it was so great um, to be a part of that. Anyways, um, you know now things start to heat up. Uh, I've got to kind of put the uh, the social scene on the back burner, and uh, it is time uh, to get busy. So let's get to some hockey questions here. And as I say, it is the preseason, so let's start with a layup. Uh, the first question comes uh, from Joshua Grand. Hey, Bob, can't for the life of me find out what this coming season's trade deadline date is for the NHL. Do you know? We like to pick our fantasy league's deadline date in conjunction with the NHL's. Thanks from Josh Grand. Well, Josh, it doesn't get much easier than this one. It's a layup for me. Monday, February 26th would be the deadline. 3 p.m. Eastern time, Monday, February 26th. Mark it in your calendars. It'll be a busy day for us at TSN. should point out, too, that's right around the day after, I think, the Olympic uh, gold medal games end. Um, Olympics are different this year. Um, and speaking of which, segue, segue, next question comes from Michael Hofer or Hoffer from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Hi, Bob. Welcome back, and I hope you had a relaxing summer. I have a question regarding Alex Ovechkin's desire to participate in the 2018 Olympic Games. The NHL has categorically refused to allow players on an NHL contract to participate. Conversely, my understanding is that the IIHF has ruled that players on an NHL contract are ineligible to be selected by the respective nation's teams. However, is there any provision in the CBA that would prohibit the Washington Capitals and Alex Ovechkin from mutually terminating his current contract to allow him to participate in Pyeongchang with a handshake deal for Ovi to re-sign with the Capitals? Thank you and welcome back. That from Michael Hofer or Hoffer. Well, Michael, I don't know if there's a provision per se in the CBA, but the Bill Daly and Gary Bettman and the guys of the NHL aren't stupid and uh, there's not a chance in the world that uh, Ted Leonsis or Alex Ovechkin could do a nudge-nudge, wink-wink, terminate a contract and come back after the fact. Um, just couldn't happen, wouldn't happen. Um, and if you saw Ovechkin, he put out what I call a letter of resignation. And it, not that he's resigning uh, so much as he's resigned to the fact that he's not able to participate in the Olympics. The Russian Ice Hockey Federation has basically said they can't have him, they won't have him. Um, so the players as disappointed as they are, the fans as disappointed as we are, uh, listen, we're not happy. No one's really happy about it. Um, but it's the national hockey league's right to, uh, unilaterally decide that. And, um, everybody's just going to get, have to get used to the idea. So, uh, moving on next question from Derek Bronson. With glove tapping and face-off violations being called more often, will the 2017-18 NHL season be known as the beginning of the power play era? Boy, Derek, I, I sure hope not. Um, but, you know, no pain, no gain, as they say. Now, I think fans are probably a little more on board 
with the glove tapping crackdown. Uh, that is to suggest after Sidney Crosby almost severed the finger of Mark Mathot last year without so much as a minor penalty, um, I think people recognized that the time had come for the NHL to crack down on the number of uh, slashes on the hands. But uh, as any crackdown, um, it's hard to draw where the line is. So basically during the preseason, um, any time a player slashes the glove or the stick of, of any other player, they're getting a minor penalty. So we've seen a parade to the penalty box in the preseason, and it's made, made it very difficult for there to be any flow in preseason games. It's made it very difficult for teams to evaluate the players they want to evaluate. Um, brings back memories of coming out of the lockout in 2004-05 and the new set of rules that were in place for the 05-06 season and the parade to the penalty box we saw all season until the players finally got it in their head how they were going to have to play the game without using their stick to hook and hold and obstruct. Um, that was a worthwhile investment, I think. Um, I don't know that fans are as on board with this happening now. Um, but as I said, certainly for the slash, you can understand it. And hopefully the players will adapt. Um, but on average, I mean, in the early going here, we're seeing as many as six slashing penalties per period. Uh, sorry, per game in the preseason. Some games more than that, some games less. But I think the average in the first three or four days was six slashing minors. Uh, to give you an idea, over the course of an NHL regular season, it's 0.6 slashing minors per game. Uh, so a tenfold increase in the preseason, or a very small sample size of the preseason. So hopefully the players will get it. Now, the, um, the face-off violation, my goodness, that's the one that's driving everybody crazy. And understandably so. I'm frustrated by it. Everybody is. But I also do a little understand where the National Hockey League is coming from. We started to see last year cheating go to new levels on, on face-offs. The one in particular people remember is Kyle Turris using his skate blade to prevent Sidney Crosby from winning a face-off. That is to say, Turris would cheat on the face-off to the degree where his skate blade was so close to the center red dot that as soon as the puck was dropped, he would shield the puck with his skate. Sidney Crosby would try to go down and get the puck, but all he'd get is a, a whole load of Kyle Turris' skate blade and Turris could win the draw on that basis. What the NHL noticed was that the integrity of face-offs has basically gone out the window, that it's become that the cheating has become so epidemic that it's almost the players are almost offside before they're entering into a face-off. Some players' skates were already starting to almost encroach on the other side of the, uh, the red face-off dot. Linesmen were noticing that players' skates were coming in behind their skate, um, that there was the threat of being slew-footed um, on a face-off. So there has been a sense of uh, something had to be done. Now, you know, fans don't care about the face-offs. Media don't care about the face-offs. Um, and a lot of players don't care. And a lot of coaches have been very unhappy with how this preseason's gone. And I will say, while I understand the NHL's desire to try and reclaim a little bit of the integrity of, uh, of the face-off. I also worry any time the league starts to use the red lines on the ice uh, as sacrosanct. And I go back to uh, the Brad Hall toe-in-the-crease controversy of, of uh, the Buffalo-Dallas Stanley Cup final in the late 90s. And um, if the players don't get this, does this become a season-long um, blemish on the game? Um, Got to believe the players are going to get it, that the centers will figure it out, 
that at some point here, and I guess it'll probably carry over beyond the preseason to the regular season, we are likely to see something of a parade to the penalty box or maybe more less flow and more interruption than we would like to see. But I also think that uh, we've got to be careful that we don't just, for the sake of expediency, allow the game to continue to de-evolve. And I think to some degree we've started to do that. There is more obstruction. There is more hooking. There is more holding. There are more things that don't get called now. And uh, you've got to think back to that 2005-2006 season coming out of the lockout and uh, the good that it did the game. Um, But I think we're starting on a real slippery slope to getting back to the 2004 levels that necessitated a crackdown. And uh, as I said, no pain, no gain. And uh, it's up to the players to decide how long this is going to carry on and how much frustration as fans uh, and media we're going to have to endure. Next question is Justin, a Habs fan from British Columbia. Hey, Bob, this summer before Leon Dreisaitl was signed, I noticed a lot of fans online wondering why any team hadn't signed him to an offer sheet. This seemed far-fetched, but it got me thinking, why haven't we seen an offer sheet of any sort for about four years? Much appreciated. Justin from Prince George, British Columbia. Uh, Well, you're absolutely right, Justin. Offer sheets um, seem to have gone gone the way of the dodo bird. Um, and there's some people out there, cynical people, would suggest it's collusion, that the National Hockey League owners and general managers have gotten together and say, hey, you lay off our players, we'll lay off your players, let's all play nice in the sandbox. I don't believe that for a minute. Uh, I think they want to win. I think they want to win at all costs. But I also think that they recognize, um, for the most part, offer sheet is an exercise in futility and that uh, the team that you... Um, go after for an offer sheet, um, they almost exclusively and entirely um, will match the offer. And that uh, it does make uh, make the other guy's life difficult, but uh, there probably is an element of, of worrying a little bit about payback, a little bit of being on the outside looking in, in the general manager's fraternity. And that's less about collusion and more about practicality. Um, I mean... When Nikita Kucherov uh, didn't get an offer sheet in, in Tampa um, last year, that's when I realized, uh, or, or you know, our, before Artemi Panarin resigned in Chicago, those, those were guys I thought if ever there were going to be a situation, because Tampa and Chicago were right up against it in terms of the salary cap. Um, if ever somebody was going to hold somebody's feet to the fire on an offer sheet for really good players, in this case, it happened to be two Russians, Nikita Kucherov in Tampa and Artemi Panarin when he was still in Chicago uh, before the trade with Columbus. Um, my theory then was if, if you didn't see an offer sheet there, you're not likely to see one anytime soon. Next up comes from uh, Derek Bronson. Hey, Bob, I love your podcast. Well done. What are your thoughts on the Calgary Flames building situation? It seems to me they are pressuring pressuring the city of Calgary to pay a substantial amount of taxpayers' money for a new building or else. But when I look back to 1996 and Jerry Moy's attempt to move the team after move the Arizona Coyotes after significant financial losses, the league fought tooth and nail to prevent him from moving, even though he was literally bankrupt. Yet in Calgary's case... Gary Bettman made an appearance at the Flames press conference as a sign of solidarity and in a way of showing support for have planned if they don't get their way, even though the team is not losing any money in the grand scheme of things. How can the league force Jerry Moyes to stay, yet seemingly support a potential move 
of Calgary's team, the Flames. Thanks for your time, Derek. Well, Derek, um, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting um, principle. Let me first say this. As a general rule of thumb, general principle in a vacuum, I don't believe that taxpayers' money um, should be spent on arenas for professional sports teams. Um, that That's my personal view. Now, having said that, I also recognize that in the real world, um, everything's a negotiation. And um, in the case of the Calgary Flames, um, they obviously didn't like where things were sitting with uh, discussions, negotiations with uh, Mayor Nenshi in Calgary on a new building. And so they made the public announcement, okay, that's it, no more talks, we're, uh, we're not coming to the table anymore. The implication, of course, being, um, hey, listen, uh, you don't want to get this building done as much as we want to, and uh, therefore the implied threat is maybe, maybe uh, you'll have to suffer the consequences if we're not going to be at the table anymore. And, and I think a cynic would suggest that that's a, a power play. But I think it's also one of the leverage points that you see in a negotiation. And I understand, in my mind, it is a negotiation, even though to the, to the, to the, to the letter of the, the word that, that uh, Ken King was putting out there was, no, we're no longer discussing this with you. Well, of course, they're going to continue to discuss it. That's my view. Um, and so I don't expect the Calgary City Council and the mayor to say, here's an arena. Um, and I don't expect the Calgary Flames to say um, we're leaving. Um, but I think everybody realizes that uh, these things tend to do to get negotiated. And it's a complex subject matter. When I say in a vacuum, taxpayers shouldn't have to pay for uh, to subsidize an arena for a professional sports team. There's all sorts of ways of getting around that in terms of the user pays and taxes, uh, specific taxes on on the people that use the arena and that benefit from the arena. So, as I said, it's a, it's a complex argument. And Gary Bettman, on, on the whole Phoenix-Calgary argument, here's why that one doesn't hold any water. Jerry Moyes wasn't trying to leverage a new arena in Phoenix. Jerry Moyes was trying to tell the National Hockey League, I'm leaving Phoenix and you can't stop me. So there was no question that Bettman versus Moyes, and he tried to do it under cover of a, of a bankruptcy filing that, the, that caught the league by surprise. So that was a really um, antagonistic um, a- approach for Jerry Moyes to try and do something without the blessing of the National Hockey League. In Calgary, Gary Bettman is 100% on board with the implied threat um, because he, he does he he does believe that if the Calgary Flames don't get a new arena, I'm not saying how they get it. If the Calgary Flames do not get a new arena, then their long-term ability in that city is is uh, is greatly hindered. Um, their long-term viability in that city is greatly hindered. Um, I don't think, though, that uh, um, I mean Bettman did the same thing recently in Phoenix because the Coyotes need a new building. And Batman went down to the current owners of Andrew Barraway and basically did the exact same thing for Barraway and the Coyotes that he did for Ken King, Murray Edwards, and the Calgary Flames, which is to say, hey, if this team is going to stay here in Arizona, it's got to have a new building. 
you guys can figure out how best to get that new building, but there's got to be a new building. And I would say ultimately at some point in time, the same is true in Calgary. So as I said, everything's a negotiation. I think they'll ultimately get it sorted out somewhere down the line as to how much, if any, public money goes into it and uh, what works best for the mayor. What's fascinating, though, is how Bettman and Ken King and the Calgary Flames interjected themselves into the mayoralty Olympic uh, mayoralty election this fall. So what was the, that was the, the biggest takeaway for me was Mayor Ninchy's running for re-election and Gary Bettman, and you've got the, the Calgary Flames and Gary Bettman basically saying, hey, when it comes time to vote for your new mayor in the fall, uh, make sure you vote for somebody who's uh, friendly to the Calgary Flames, or that was sort of the the implication. So um, hopefully it'll get sorted out. But um, as I said, these things are uh, negotiations. Everybody's going to use whatever leverage they have in their back pocket. And uh, I think it's still, even though the Flames would argue otherwise, I would say I think it's still fairly early in the process. So uh, take that for what it what, what it is. Next up is Derek Stoddard. Derek says, Hi, Bob, a longtime fan of yours and really do enjoy the Bobcast. With the recent announcement of the NHL and the NHLPA's Declaration of Principles, talk once again has surfaced of upping the eligible draft age to 19. As is always noted when this topic comes up, the Players Association would need to sign off on any such decision. Can you share with your listeners why the NHLPA would ever oppose a 19-year-old draft? As the league becomes younger and more veteran players are being squeezed out by young talent on entry-level contracts, wouldn't the existing membership benefit from delayed entry? Would opposition be about honoring the existing system that members came up through, or would it be about getting young stars into the league as quickly as possible to escalate salaries? Or would opposition be about something else? I appreciate you taking the time to read and answer my question, Bob. Looking forward to another Great season of the Bobcast. And that is from Derek Stoddard in Belnan, Nova Scotia. Um, good question, Derek. Um, a couple of things on this. Um, Declaration of Principles, if you saw that at the beginning of the season, uh, right, out, right out of the hop after Labor Day, the NHL and the NHLPA came up with a, a list of principles, if you will, about hockey being inclusive as opposed to exclusive and uh, a lot of uh, stuff that uh, is all really good in theory, but we, we need to, to put into practice on a regular basis. Now, the 19-year-old draft is um, got a lot of attention at that time. The 19-year-old draft, and, and Pat LaFontaine, um, in, in concert with the NHL, the NHLPA, and virtually every level of hockey, junior hockey, college hockey, all of the international federations, basically everybody, for the last number of years, they've been working on a sort of a redefinition or a restructuring of how the entire system of hockey fits with each other. The National Hockey League, obviously, at the top of the pyramid, but everybody else from the bottom of the pyramid up and how it would all work. Um, the proposal for the 19-year-old draft, which is gaining, gaining widespread um, recognition and endorsement from virtually everybody in hockey um, wasn't just part of a wasn't just a one-off it wasn't just they said oh 18 year old drafts no good let's make it 19 year old it's it's more about an age-appropriate restructuring that happens all the way through the game so in other words 
it would ripple the the 19-year-old draft wouldn't just be done unilaterally for the National Hockey League it would in theory have a a, a ripple effect so instead of the OHL draft being allowing 16-year-olds to come into the OHL that would get bumped up a year so the instead of it being a minor midget draft for the OHL it would be a midget draft um so you end up with players playing minor hockey until they're 16 years, fully 16 years old. So being a 15-year-old minor midget and then graduating to the OHL or the, the, uh, the, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League or the Western Hockey League, you would not play in the OHL as a 16-year-old. You would enter as a 17-year-old. So your junior years would become 17, 18, 19, and 20 as an overage year. Um, then you would have the NHL draft with provisions, obviously, for exceptional players to be drafted at age 18, the details of which we don't really know at this point. But otherwise, it would be a widespread 19-year-old draft. So you'd be keeping more players in junior hockey, in theory, longer. Um, as part of it, it was also suggested to the U.S. colleges, the NCAA, that currently doesn't allow any player that's played major junior hockey in Canada to have NCAA eligibility, that they should change those rules. That when a player is finished playing junior hockey at age 19 or 20 in the CHL, he should be eligible to go and play college hockey as well. So make no mistake, the whole concept of this 19-year-old draft wasn't just as a one-off unilaterally for the NHL and the NHLPA to argue about or to, to agree on. It was more a refit, restructure, a reset of the entire hockey system from the time kids start to play at age five or six to the time that they stop playing hockey as 21 or 22 or 23 year olds in college or, or what have you. Anyways, as for the NHLPA, um, should note that Matthew Schneider, who is, is a member of the National Hockey League Players Association executive and is on this committee that's worked with Pat LaFontaine on all of this, he himself has personally said he's in favor of the 19-year-old draft for the very reasons that I talked about because it would cause a reset at the junior hockey and minor hockey levels all the way down. Um, but uh, the National Hockey League Players Association, is like the NHL, is not in the habit of giving away a leverage point for nothing. So in other words, the National Hockey League Players Association, because they're in a business relationship with the NHL, and the Olympics would be a classic case of this one, I mean... The NHL decided unilaterally, we're not going to the Olympics this year. NHL Players Association was really upset about it. And in the past, the NHLPA has had it written into the collective bargaining agreement that players got to go to the Olympics, but it wasn't included this time around for a variety of reasons um, that are too numerous to get into at this point. But my point simply is this. The NHLPA isn't necessarily philosophically opposed to a 19-year-old draft, but if it's going to give up something to get that 19-year-old draft, sorry, if the NHL is going to ask the NHLPA to sign off on this, the NHLPA is going to want to know what's the NHL going to do for us. And that, and you can be frustrated by that, but that's the business game, and both the NHL plays it, and so does the National Hockey League Players Association. So we'll see where the whole 19-year-old draft thing goes from here. Um, good concept. We'll see if practically um, people can make it happen. Next question comes from Alan Steele, a very loyal listener who's always tweeting at me. Uh, great job with the Bobcast. Uh, I like that it's splendid, whether peeps like it or not. I think the game needs a tune-up. I believe the red line should be put back in. 
Goalie equipment should be vastly reduced. My Ernie Wakely rule, you should be able to see the net when shooting. There should be no icing ever and no video replays at all, at least for a start. Would love to know your views and ideas. Thanks. Alan Steele from Boston, Massachusetts. I wonder if that makes Alan Steele a masshole. Just kidding, Alan. Um, Okay. First off, red line should be back in. You know what? I actually agree with that. That's a Bobby Orr thing, too. Um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the way the stretch pass has evolved. There's too much uh, defenseman gets the puck at his own goal line, uh, slaps it as hard as he can to a stationary winger at the far blue line. Stationary winger tips said puck into the, uh, the zone and skates off for a line change, and uh, it ends up a little bit like ping pong. But uh, I, I, Gord Miller disagrees with me, my pal Gord, the play-by-play man for TSN. Um, he thinks the stretch pass is great, the, a real stretch pass, though, that sets a guy in on a breakaway. And I don't disagree with that, but I, 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 think, the, uh, I think we're better off coming up the ice as five-man units with the red line uh, back in, so no two-line passes. That's just me. Uh, goal equipment should be vastly reduced. That's topical um, because we just found out that the, uh, the move to – Get the more streamlined chest protectors and uppers, as they call it, uh, the arm protectors for the goaltenders is not ready. It's not going to happen this season. Uh, just one more level of frustration and how long it takes to make this stuff happen. But uh, it's not easy. Kay Whitmore is doing his best at the National Hockey League to make this happen. Um, but the goalies union uh, is a strong one. And you do have to be careful when you reduce the size of equipment that it does doesn't uh, diminish the safety factor for the goalies. We don't want to be putting goalies in in harm's way any more than they already are. But it's also pragmatically very difficult to get the manufacturers on board, to get them to make the prototypes as quickly as they need to, to get those prototypes on the the bodies of the goaltenders, to give them enough time to test them out, to get the feedback, to redesign the prototypes, and then to do widespread... um, uh, manufacturing for all the goaltenders and get them in everybody's hands and allow them enough time to adjust and practice with them before you can put the, the stuff in place. So it's coming, but uh, so it, it takes time. Uh, too much time, but that's the way it goes. As for no icing ever, I'm not buying that. Sorry. Uh, no video replays. I mean, I would have liked to have seen the video replay for uh, offside challenges go the way of the dodo bird or at least a redefinition of offside so we have fewer of them but uh it is what it is i guess and uh, that's where we're at alan so uh thanks for the the letter uh final um question of the uh the preseason edition of the bobcast goes to matthew richards hi bob big fan for all you do in hockey since i am from kitchener I have seen quite a bit of Jeremy Brackle playing with the Rangers. During his two seasons here, he's been a really dynamic player with elite skating and puck-moving abilities. All in all, a very fun player to watch. However, when I've watched Jeremy play against other elite players, like in the World Juniors, he seems to be lost on the ice and not the same game-changer as he was in the OHL. So as a Leafs fan, this causes me some concern. What potential do you think Bracco has with the Leafs organization? I don't personally see him being better than Nylander, Marner, Brown, or Kapanen. Even if he were to crack the Leafs roster, I could only really see him as a first- or second-line player doing his playing style. Therefore, I thought he might be a good player to group with a player like JVR or Bozak to bring in a top-four defenseman, but don't really know what Bracco's value is around the league. Do you have any idea of what trading Bracco could return for the Leafs? Keep up the great work, Matthew. Uh, I've seen Jeremy Bracco play a lot because, like Matthew, I'm a Kitchener Ranger fan, but for different reasons. Of course, my son Mike is now the general manager of the Kitchener Rangers. 
Um, so Jeremy Bracco is a first-year pro, won a Memorial Cup last year with the Windsor Spitfires, was instrumental in the Windsor Spitfires winning that Memorial Cup, uh, had a real good Memorial Cup, made some great plays, and uh, as I said, was in on some key goals that led the way for, uh, for Windsor to, uh, to win that as the host. I will say this about Jeremy Bracco. Um, he's got a unique skill set. He's an elite-level playmaker uh, in the way he sees the ice and passes the puck. Now, I will also say this about Jeremy Bracco. He's physically underdeveloped. He's not an overly fast skater. And um, it's going to be a challenge for him to become an everyday NHL player. But my theory on Jeremy Bracco is this. In order for an undersized player um, to May as a National Hockey League regular, you have to have one, at least one, extraordinary ability. And I do believe that Bracco's Ability as a playmaker, especially on the power play, can be termed extraordinary. Um, but he's going to have to first prove that he can do it at the American Hockey League level. He is not a player who's on the same level as Nylander or Marner or Brown. Um, he is going to have to go to the Marlies and play for Sheldon Keefe and prove that against bigger, stronger, faster players that the added physical element of the game in pro hockey and the added speed element of the game in pro hockey is something that he can deal with, especially in a five-on-five environment, uh, not just on the power play where he does his magic. But I'll tell you what, there's a certain quality to the kid. Um, you know, he's a cocky kid. He's, uh, he's a nonstop talker. And uh, he's, uh, there's, there's a certain joy to the way that he plays the game. But he's going to have challenges at the next level. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily preclude that he's got no chance to play in the National Hockey League because that playmaking ability he does have is extraordinary. He's very shifty. And uh, I don't know if there's room for just a power play specialist in the National Hockey League. But if there is, this would be the profile of a player that might be able to do that. So I wish Jeremy all the best. Um, he's a fun kid. I uh, got to meet his dad and his his uncle a little bit um, in their time uh, as Kitchener Ranger hockey parents. And um, it'll be interesting for me to see how he fares at the next level. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily count him out, but but he's by no means a slam dunk to be a regular in the National Hockey League. And, and how he adapts to uh, bigger, stronger, faster players and not being able to do some of the things that came easy to him in, in junior and how hard he works to get physically stronger um, and to apply himself in all those areas uh, will tell the tale for Jeremy. So uh, great question, Matthew. Um, so thanks and uh, good luck to the Kitchener Rangers for obvious reasons this season. Okay, so uh, that's it for uh, Volume 2, Episode 1. Uh, of the Bobcast for another season, the, the preseason edition. I didn't want to set the bar too high on the first episode or pre, because it is the preseason. Come on, give me a break. And uh, quite frankly, I don't think we set the bar too high. So anyways, just so you know the schedule, it's uh, same as last year, every other week, every other Friday, um, even though this one came out on a Thursday. Um, so the next one will come your way on the first Friday of the regular season. Friday, October the 6th. So catch you then. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you enjoy another season of the Bobcast. Thanks.
Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the at TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.